All right, if you would, you turn in your worship guide to today's passage, which is John 4, 1 through 42. We'll just start off by reading it together. It's kind of a long one, um, but every bit of it is important. So we'll read it together, and then we'll jump in. Uh, we have a custom of standing and read God's Word during this time, and I want to invite you to do that. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet. The time is coming, and has now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father speaks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. 
When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have bought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I think you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work. And you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. We know that this man really is the Savior. And the meditations of our hearts here together be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys can be seated. Well, like we said at the beginning, this is the longest, this is the longest story, the longest episode in the Gospel of John. We've been doing this slow hike through John's Gospel, going real slow because there is so much to see, so many things to turn over and pick up, and we're just moving along and trying to soak it all in. We started in this story last Sunday, and we're in this story again this Sunday. We might spend one more week in the story. I'll, I haven't decided yet. We'll see, we'll see how tomorrow morning feels. Uh, but, so we're just, we're not taking everything from this story. We're just we're looking at certain pieces of it each week. Now, uh, I'm convinced that this giant uh, story, the, the key to interpret it, the key for us readers to know how to read it, John the Gospel writer tips us off at the beginning. He gives us a clue. It's in verse 9. Jesus comes up to the well. It's noon. He's tired. Uh, it's hot. He waits at the well. And this woman comes up. He says, give me a drink. His disciples have gone into town. And she looks at him and she says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? I think that's the key. That gives us a map on how to read this. There's two parts to this statement that she makes. Two parts to her question. Two parts to her confusion. 
You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? There's this Jew-Samaritan thing. There's a Jewish-Samaritan divide. We focused on this last Sunday. We focused on how um, there had been this centuries-long rift between Jews and Samaritans over an argument about different understandings about how to worship, where to worship God. We see this come up in the question that she asks him. Our ancestors worshipped here on this mountain. Our people say over here in Jerusalem. You know, which is it? We examined this last week. That, that rift, that divide, had turned into, had grown into this huge, um, you know, I think the best word, uh, maybe the best way for us to describe it using our cultural language, is it had just turned into straight up racism. Uh, segregation, racism, apartheid, ethnic, social, cultural elitism. That's what was happening. She says Jews do not associate with Samaritans. We look at history and we, we learn that she's saying that nicely. And it went both ways. And Jesus, we saw in this story, Jesus came to Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Um, the spirit who had Remember in John's Gospel, Jesus is the Spirit anointed man. The Spirit was leading him to Samaria. Why? Because he's God's light that shines in the darkness. The darkness can't overcome it. He went to Samaria to shine a light on that ethnic, cultural, racial elitism. To shine a light on the Jew-Samaritan divide. And that darkness went away. We saw that last week. Jesus said, look, a time is coming where it's not this mountain or that mountain. A time is coming and it's now here where it's not Jew or Samaritan. True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus declares the end of the racial ethnic divide by declaring the arrival of spirit and truth worship for all people. So we saw that last week. How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Samaritan piece, last week. If you want more on that, it's on the internet. Second part of this is the woman thing. How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? It matters that it's a Samaritan woman at the well in Sukkot. Just like there was darkness in the way the Jews regarded their Samaritan neighbors. There was darkness in the way that men regarded women and girls in this time. Jesus came to Samaria to shine a light on that darkness. His words and his actions here in this story we see as the light of God shining in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it. He comes to confront the gender hierarchy that existed here and show a better way. Let me just give some context. We did this last week learning about the, the, the Jew-Samaritan divide. Let me give you some context about what relationships were like between men and women, boys and girls at this time. In fact, let me rephrase that. Let me just give you some context about uh, how society as a whole 
uh, in this first century Jewish world uh, viewed and treated women. Um, in the first century world, it was common for the people of God um, and others to assume, basically to assume the worst of women. Women and girls stood behind and below men and boys in rank and class and opportunity and treatment and in privilege, all because of their sex, because they were female. Uh, and this was considered this hierarchy between the genders, men and boys over women and girls. It was considered to be an essential element of a well-ordered society. We see this, uh, consider the words of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. He was a Pharisee. Remember a few weeks ago we learned about the Pharisees? They're not just the bad guys, but people like us. Josephus, he was a contemporary um, Jesus and the Apostle Paul probably didn't know them though. Uh, and so he's around this time. He, he wrote this. The woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. Pretty straight up, straight up unqualified statement there. Josephus is, is reflecting the, the dominant Jewish worldview at this time. The woman, says the law, notice he points to the Bible, is in all things inferior to the man. Well, why the law, Josephus? Why would the inferiority of women go back to the law? Well, during this time, many rabbis did not believe that women were obligated to observe the whole law. The Torah, the law, which taught people how to live before God under his covenant of grace, that was for men, and some of it was for women, but not all of it. Women did not, did not have to live under the whole law. Why? Why is this? Well, because, uh, of course, there are exceptions, but because once a month, women go through a menstruation cycle. According to the law, during that cycle, they are ceremonial unclean, ceremonially unclean. Therefore, during that time, they don't participate. Therefore, not all the laws for them. Therefore, they stand below and inferior to men who get to participate all the time. That was the view. This was reflected in a rabbinic prayer that was taught. It was taught in synagogues, taught in families. It was widespread and, and, and documented. It goes like this. This is translated into King James style English, but that sounds fancy, and that's what my source I had, so I'll say it like that. Here was the prayer. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a Gentile. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a boar. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make me a woman. That's what little boys learned in Sunday school. Jews believed that Samaritan women, in particular, were the lowest kind of women. They weren't just unclean once a month during their cycle. They were unclean all the time. So most rabbis uh, or priests or people who took their faith seriously, they would avoid uh, Samaritan women all the time because to, to go talk to one or to touch one or to drink from her water jar 
would mean that you would become ceremonial unclean and you cannot participate in, um, in the temple rituals or things like that. So that was the, the Jewish mindset. Now we need to be careful. Remember we learned a few weeks ago when John talks about the Jews, we need to be careful not to just wholesale impart that to uh, Jewish people as we see them today. We need to read this as the people of God. That's us. But it wasn't just the Jewish world that had this mindset. Well, any study of history, we can look back and we could see this, but let me just give you examples. In the Greek mind at this time, Greek culture, uh, men, taught, men were taught to be grateful. There was a, it wasn't a prayer, it was more of a saying, very similar to the, to the rabbinic prayer. Be grateful that you were born a human being and not a beast, a man and not a woman, and a Greek and not a barbarian. And it wasn't just the Greeks, it was also the Romans. In Roman culture, culture, there was a thing called paterfamilia. Paterfamilia was the way, the legal way and the cultural way that uh, households were, and that societies were ordered. The oldest male in the household, or Roman households usually had the immediate nuclear family, sometimes some extended family, many times slaves and servants. The oldest male in the household, he had absolute authority in the household. And when I say absolute authority, that's exactly what I mean. Unquestionable social and legal absolute authority. According to the law, he had absolute authority over the life and death over the people in his house. He had authority over their bodies. He had authority over their decisions. He had authority over their actions. This means that if you grew up in a Roman household under paterfamilia and you were not uh, dad or the oldest male, then you did not get to have bodily autonomy. You didn't get to decide. Uh, you didn't get to be in charge of your own body. You didn't get to be in charge of your own decisions. There's no protections against abuse. And this went to the oldest male. So this was the whole world at this time. The world had a protocol for how women were treated, how they were regarded. Now the Gospel writer, John, he tells us this story about Jesus. He has to go through Samaria. He has to do this thing. And when he gets there, Jesus is shining a light on particular corners of darkness in Samaria. And one of those corners is the corner of darkness of gender hierarchy. When I say gender hierarchy, I mean uh, the idea that women are less than men. That women are less valuable that women are less important, less qualified, less human, less gifted, less human. I'm talking about what, because the technical term would be androcentrism. Having an androcentric view of relationships in the world. Androcentrism is the view, uh, andro, man, or male, centric, centered, 
that the idea that maleness is normal, that is default humanity. Femaleness is somehow an offshoot or less than that. Jesus comes to shine a light on that darkness. Well, so, uh, if we're looking for a big idea in this story, if you're a note taker, the first part of that big idea is this. Jesus confronts gender hierarchy. He confronts it. Um, now, John, the gospel writer, uh, really wants us to catch this. I know that many times when this story is taught, it's taught, and this message is included. But many times when this story is taught, the message that Jesus is confronting gender hierarchy here gets deleted. And I don't like that, but I, I kind of understand it, because talking about gender hierarchy, especially in church, uh, is complicated. Uh, our culture, out, out there, the, in the outside of church culture, we talk about gender hierarchy all the time. But when we come in here, the conversation often be, it's different. It becomes more personal, the pain it seems to get more real, it gets more awkward, people get scared, we start worrying about our church polity, we start looking around and, and we're looking to sniff out the, the liberal in the room, and it, it gets super weird. So a lot of pastors, I get it, they, they just skip over this part of the story. But we can't, because John the Gospel writer, he doubles down on this. Notice that the way he tells this story, somebody at the beginning and then at the end of Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, at the beginning and the end, it's pointed out directly that it's weird, that it's awkward, that it's abnormal that Jesus is speaking with a woman. He walks up at the beginning and she says, how can you be talking to me, a Samaritan woman? And then they have their conversation, and at the end, here come the disciples, and I thought it was strange that he was talking with a woman. John wants us to see this. He wants us to get this. So, let's consider how Jesus speaks to this woman. Let's consider how Jesus treats this woman. How is it that Jesus is shining the light on this darkness? of gender hierarchy. Well, first, she nails it. She names it. He speaks with her. He speaks with her openly. He speaks with her privately. One-on-one. -on -one. Years ago, uh, the very famous evangelist Billy Graham, you may have known that he had a personal rule, Something we call the Billy Graham Rule. Have you heard of the Billy Graham Rule? Billy Graham Rule is a rule that many pastors follow. Um, many churches actually enforce. I've worked at churches where this was a policy. It's the rule where the pastor uh, does not and cannot meet privately one-on-one -on -one with a woman without someone else present or without another man present, without another woman present. And the idea is that it's supposed to protect um, your guard against uh, any kind of sexual sin happening in that moment. Well, now Billy Graham held that rule, and many pastors do today, but Jesus does not hold to that rule. Uh, Jesus meets with her privately. 
No one else around. Yeah, it's out in the open. But the disciples left and left him there. Why is that important? Well, it's important because say, say you grew up in a church that enforced the Billy Graham rule and you were a woman. You could look around and you could see that all these men around you have access to the pastor and his elders. They can meet with him, they can ask questions, they can spend time at length in the office, they can go have coffee, they can have dinner together, they can ride together to a place that access. But the women don't. Also, the men and the boys in the church are viewed as safe people for the pastor to be around. But the women aren't. He might get seduced. He might be tempted. Their very presence, along with him, becomes a liability. There's too much temptation. They're too sexual just to be in their presence. Or they might accuse him of something because they can't be trusted. Billy Graham rule is a slant. Jesus doesn't do it. Notice he speaks with her openly, one-on-one. And even though people think it's weird, I can't believe he's talking with a woman. This whole time, we've been away by him. He's been here. But he does. Okay, let's move on. Next, he kindly asks her for a drink. He doesn't order her. Now, in this time, women went to the well because it was a, it was a cultural gender role. The women were the ones who went. And Jesus, you know, he's not out there to just totally blow the culture up. It's, okay, whatever, women are the ones who go to the world, great. Uh, but he, he could have gone up and he said, he could have said, Samaritan, give me a drink. Woman, give me a He doesn't. He says, hey, um, have a drink. Also, he does call her woman that we saw. Remember in the story of Jesus at the wedding of Cana? Jesus called his mom woman. And this time, woman was, was a polite way to address a female. But Jesus walks up and he says, Ma'am, can I have a drink? She's going, Whoa, why are you talking to me like this? So he, he, he does not treat her like a servant or like a subordinate when he speaks to her. Um, then he invites her into a spiritual discussion. Rabbis did not do this, but it was not common. There are exceptions. It's not common for rabbis to take on uh, female students at this time. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. It was almost unheard of for rabbis to uh, address Samaritan women in this way. Remember, a Samaritan woman, perpetually unclean. He doesn't only speak to her, he invites her into a spiritual discussion. He He talks theology with her. He demonstrates his prophetic knowledge and ability. Remember, Jesus is the spirit-anointed man. He is anointed as a prophet, priest, and king. He shows her that he is a prophet. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. That's exactly right. You have five. And the man you're with now is not your husband. Sometimes in the history of the church, uh, and even now today, it's common for people to read that and assume the worst of her. Assume that she's some kind of adulterous or serial man seducer or something like that. Actually, in this time, the mortality rate was super high. 
Leveret marriage was practiced during this time. So if a woman was married to a man and he died, she would marry his brother. And then if he died, she would marry his brother. That was super common. Also, divorce laws went like this. A man and a woman are married. The man gets upset for any reason with his wife whatsoever, unquestioned. He writes a little piece of paper. We're now divorced. signs it, hands it to her. She's gone. So even though it would have been rare and uncommon for her to have been married five times, Jesus never, he never once in the story calls it sin. Why does he bring it up? Because it shows her that he supernaturally knows her. I know you. I know your story. Also, the man she's living with now is not her husband. We don't know. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. Anyway, he demonstrates to her that he is a prophet. Why is that important? Because here he is going into this whole new place on mission, and she's the person. He wants to, she's the point of contact. He didn't want to go to like the mayor of the town. He didn't want to go to the Potter Familia. He goes to her. Okay? And he knows her. Now, he says, the man you're with now is not your husband. And she says, I see you're a prophet. So she recognizes his prophetic ability. But the man you're with now is, is not your husband. You know, it could be that she had a living boyfriend. Maybe. Um, it could be that she lived with, after, man, after five guys, oh, man, that had to have been painful. It could be that she lived with her brother. It could be that she lived with uh, some kind of roommate in some kind of community home that was overseen by a man. We don't know the story. But we do know is that when Jesus brings it up and he brings up her past, uh, she says, I see you are a prophet. She recognizes prophetic ability. And then she asks a question, a great question to ask the prophet about where we should worship. And what does Jesus do? He goes with her question. What's he doing there? He's respecting boundaries. She moves the subject away from her marital sexual past. And what does he do? He goes with it. He doesn't cry. He doesn't insist to know. He doesn't say, no, listen, I, I brought this up. We're talking about, no, he respects her boundaries. And if only we would do that in our churches today, for women who have been divorced or who have a peculiar relational history come into our midst and we're getting to know them, if only we respected boundaries like Jesus does. You stop asking about it when I change the subject. Anyway, uh, let's move on. He respects boundaries. Uh, he discusses theology and church history with her. She wants to talk about this Jew-Samaritan uh, thing. Which mountain do we worship on? Which one is right? And he, he says, okay, let's talk about it. Let me tell you something. The time is coming and has now come. He's talking about the dawn of a new era in redemptive history with her. And that's a big deal. Then he tells her the truth. Salvation is from the Jews. He doesn't say it harshly. But he doesn't dumb it down. He tells it to her like somebody who, who, who is capable of understanding and having a, a high-level social theological conversation. 
not something that was practiced between men and women at this time. He tells her that he is the Messiah. She is the first person in the book of John that he reveals this to. It was revealed before when John the Baptist said it, but that was John the Baptist saying, this is Jesus saying it. But as Jesus is time to out himself as the Messiah, who does he pick? He picks a woman. Uh, when his disciples come up and they're like, what is going on here? He's talking to a woman. Hey, what is this? He does not excuse or downplay his actions. He does not adhere to the bro code. He doesn't say, hey, I mean, guys, look, I was asking for a drink and she just kept talking, so I just went with it. No. And she goes, leaves her water jar and goes back to the town doing what can only be called an on-the-spot evangelistic preaching tour. He lets her go. He doesn't send a man to go with her, to qualify her words, to make sure she's covered. No, he lets her go. And when she comes back, leading a group of people, I think this is the guy, this is the Messiah, what does he do? He benefits from her ministry. Partners with her. She runs to her town. Come and see. Yeah, that sounds like uh, that sounds like the disciples. Remember earlier in the story when they were running around telling other people, "Come and see." Is this the Messiah? Sounds like John the Baptist. Here we see this woman looking like Jesus' male disciples and looking like John the Baptist here. And what does Jesus do? He goes with it. Okay. I think that's enough. Here's the point. There was an established protocol for how to regard women during this time, and Jesus breaks it. He doesn't just stretch the boundaries. He blows through them. And from this moment forward, his disciples, who were surprised at his speaking with the woman, they had to make a decision. If they were going to continue to follow him, they were going to have to learn to break the protocol as well. They were going to have to learn a different way to relate to women. And folks, the same principle applies to us. We see Jesus here acting like himself. This is who Jesus is. He's the friend of women. So if we want to follow him, if we want to be his disciples, and if we have a protocol, it doesn't agree with what he's doing here, then, then we need to change. Well, I think we do have a protocol. There is an established protocol for how we regard women in our time. And by we, I mean uh, our church and churches like ours. We can think about recent reports about sexual abuse in the church. One recently came out in our denomination, the PCA, one recently came out in a, a similar denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, and years ago one came out uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, many of you might remember that. We can look at the reports about sexual abuse in the church and we can see a slant. We can see a protocol. We can look at the widespread implementation of the Billy Graham rule by pastors and sessions and staffs. It starts with viewing women as sexual liabilities. Their presence is a sexual liability. It's not if our pastor is tempted 
and can't control himself, maybe he shouldn't be a pastor. You know, like Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Or like Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery in your heart, not her. No, in our churches, if the pastor can't handle it, cut off access. She's out. We see a slant. This is related. We, 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 we think about uh, this is widespread, especially in the purity movement that was popular in the 90s and early 2000s. Open shaming of women's bodies in the name of sexual purity, using modesty codes. She's going to cause a man to stumble. Let me tell you something. There's nothing dirty about a woman's body. God created it bear his image. If a man stumbles because a woman is dressed a certain way, that's on him. If your right eye causes you to sin, you'll be out of that. If you look at a woman lustfully, you committed adultery. But we shame women's bodies. We tell them it's because you dressed inappropriately. What were you wearing when you came on to you? You can read about that kind of thing in the report about sexual abuse in the PCA that came out last year. We assume the worst of women with complex marital or relational histories. We make assumptions about women who choose not to marry or who are divorced. We make assumptions about women who have been married for a long time and don't have children. We do. We bar women from certain programs of study in our seminaries. Or we allow them into those programs, but we don't give priority to their questions. We treat them as if they should just be honored to just be in the room. We don't even know why they're there. And if you don't believe me, ask the women who go to seminary that you might know in your life. Ask them about their experience in school. We bar women from denominational committees. We refuse to allow women to openly proclaim the gospel before men, as the Samaritan woman does in this story. Folks, we have a protocol. In the light of Jesus in the story, the light that shines in the darkness, the darkness cannot overcome it. So if we want to follow Jesus, we need to follow him and to change. Okay. Okay, Charlie. All right. Here's a question. How is this stuff that you're standing up here talking about, how is this any different than all the stuff I'm hearing out there? Maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you're thinking, Pastor Charlie has listened way too much to the outside culture. How is what he's saying any different than what I'm hearing at work, in the training seminars, the one I'm hearing in public school, the one I'm hearing on TV. How is this Bible? How is this gospel? Well, thank you for asking. Let me show you how Jesus' way is different than the world's way. You know, it is quite a shame that many places in our culture outside of the church will readily affirm the fact that we practice gender hierarchy when it's inappropriate. And they do that quicker than we do in here. Jesus is our king. 
At the same time, when we choose to follow Jesus, we need to show how what we have, what we believe in, has power. Not just to level and shame those who are on top, but actually to bring up those who are on the bottom. How does this have, how does Jesus' way have redeeming power? Let me show you. First, when Jesus sets out to level the hierarchy, to shine a light on the darkness, he doesn't do it by going out and crushing the oppressor with shame. Jesus doesn't shine a light on gender hierarchy by starting off with shaming men. And I think that's important. Men, I want you to hear me in this. The woman in this story lives at the bottom rung of a world ruled by men. She is a Samaritan woman in a Jewish world. She's at the bottom. And Jesus is here to change that. But he doesn't do it by going after the men in his town or going to his disciples and railing against them and shaming them for the way that they view and they treat her. No. In fact, that reminds me of what we studied a few weeks ago, John 3.17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So how does Jesus do it? Well, he does it by lowering himself. You know, Jesus is the only man who has the right to claim preeminence over anybody. And how does he handle himself? He lowers himself. How does he go into this town? He goes in the heat of the day. He goes in tired, thirsty, hungry, and worn out at high noon. And he goes to the well in need. It reminds me of how he lowered himself all the way to the cross. We're getting a foreshadow of that here. And then what he does, once he's lowered himself, he offers the woman the thing that he has that makes him, as God's man, special and beautiful and wonderful in the world. Remember, he is the spirit-anointed man. He is the prophet, priest, and king. And what does he do in his conversation with the woman? He offers her what he has. He says, if you knew who you were talking to, if you knew the gift of God, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Do you know what living water is in this story? Think about how water has come up in John's Gospel. It starts off with John the Baptist baptizing people where? In a river. Running water, that's called living water. And then John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, that's the guy, that's the person on whom the Spirit rests on his head. What do we do with water when we baptize people? We pour it over their heads. And then he says, that's the guy who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Associating this water symbol with Holy Spirit baptism that Jesus does. And when Jesus needs Nicodemus, what does he say? Somebody has to be born from above. They have to be born from the Spirit. How does it happen? They're born of water in the Spirit. So Jesus tells this woman, if you knew who you were talking to, ask me. I will give you living water. I will take the Spirit that is on me, that anoints me. I will take my baptism and I will pour it over you. My anointing, and I will give it to you. 
He offers her what he has. He offers in that spirit, just like that spirit makes him the prophet, makes him the king, makes him the preeminent man in the world. What's he going to do to her? And then she goes out with that spirit and she speaks. Come and see, just like the other disciples did. Come see the man that told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She speaks like John the Baptist. What is he doing? He is lifting her up with an anointing by the Holy Spirit. And then the whole town, or I can't say that, the text doesn't say that. It says many Samaritans. So a good chunk, at least, of the town comes out at her word. They believe her. They come out and they gather around. And what's happening there? Well, the story starts off with a solitary woman at the bottom of the social ladder standing next to a well in the heat of the day. How does it end? It ends with a community of men and women, Jews and Samaritans, all together gathered around the living water well of the Holy Spirit that rests upon Jesus in the cool of the day. Something has shifted. Jesus levels the gender hierarchy not by going out to crush and shame the person on top. No. He does it by inclusion. By including and bringing up the person on the bottom. And it's not a halfway inclusion. By the person on the bottom, I mean women and girls. He includes them by giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that went with him to the cross, that rose him from the dead, and that went with him as he ascended to heaven. So after the coming of the Spirit upon the people of God, let me go back. Before the coming of the Spirit upon the people of God, we can go back and read our Old Testament. We can read about men get to do some things, women get to do some other things, men get to be priests, women don't get to do that, men get to go this far of the temple, women don't get to go all the way in. We can see these things in the old order of things. But after the Spirit goes all the way down with Jesus, comes to the cross, comes all the way up with resurrection, and he ascends into heaven as the preeminent man, what does he do? He pours his Spirit out, like the Apostle Peter said, quoting the prophet Joel, on all flesh, on all people. So sons and daughters can prophesy, young and old, both men and women. What we see in this story, Jesus is giving a preview, a foretaste of what's going to happen at the day of Pentecost. What's going to happen after he shines the light in the darkest place on the cross? What happens in his new era, in his new order, where men and women together, filled with the Holy Spirit, constitute a new people of God without hierarchy? Well, actually, that's not true. There is a hierarchy. There's one person over us, and it's Jesus Christ. It's just the way they... Other than that, not one person is over another. Men and women together as disciples. Men and women prophesying. Men and women dreaming the dreams that God gives them. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote, In Christ, 
you are all children of God through faith. You who are baptized into Christ, clothe yourself with Christ. There is no Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female. There is only one in Christ. All right, we're way over time. We're out of time. Let me just end it like this. Those disciples came up. They were confused. But they were watching Jesus do a thing with the Holy Spirit. I wonder if that's where we are. They had a decision to make. I think we do too. Are we going to be a community of the Holy Spirit? Or are we going to be some other kind of society that doesn't bear witness to the life of Jesus like he created us to? Let's pray.